Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we are going to explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. As a CPA for the past 30 years, wait, let me say 25 because that makes me sound younger. I have seen it all when it comes to money and emotions. And if you think I'm talking about my clients, I'm not. I'm talking about myself. My relationship with money has been, and sometimes still is, an emotional roller coaster. Maybe that's something you're also familiar with. Good news. You and I are not the only ones. Our next guest is going to share their money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges as well. Buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. As CEO of All About People, the third largest minority-owned company in the state of Arizona, our next guest, Charles Mitchell, is no stranger to helping people. All About People is an Arizona-based recruiting firm that aims to not only have impact on the lives of those who they directly serve, but also have a ripple effect on the community. Outside of serving the community there, Charles is co-founder of The Conscious Vibe Podcast, where he and Dr. Daryl Jones interview a diverse group of people in order to elevate intellect through conscious dialogue. When he's not inspiring people on the podcast or running All About People, Charles serves on boards for community endeavors both locally and nationally. Today, we have the honor of having not one, but two guests. So also with us today is the co-founder of The Conscious Vibe, Dr. Daryl Jones. In addition to facilitating multifaceted conversations around race, politics, business, and culture on the podcast, he owns and operates a consulting firm which specializes in organizational development, DE&I which for those of you that don't know is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and culture. Prior to hanging his own shingle, he held executive positions at Nike. He is also the founder and president of the E5 Foundation based in Chicago, Illinois, a nonprofit focused on transformation of Chicago's underserved youth in critical areas of development. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Glad to be here. So let me ask you this. You've created this podcast to have wonderful conversations to bring things to consciousness. How did that happen? Charles, it's your turn. <laughs> I was wondering who was gonna, who's going to get the honor this time. It has its roots during the beginning of the pandemic. DJ and I met probably a couple of months before that and found ourselves having just rich conversations literally from the night we first met through the next several months as we're kind of navigating what's happening to all of us in life. And it was either on his patio or on my patio Sometimes it was just the two of us. Sometimes we had, you know, a couple of other buddies of ours who'd be joining us in the conversation. And we just found it to be really not only rich and, you know, opportunities for us both to learn and have different perspectives, but we had a lot of fun. Yeah. And I think that was probably one of the bigger aspects for me is that we were enjoying this dialogue and conversation, challenging each other in a number of areas that we felt were important. And then we just looked at ourselves and said, we need to take this conversation beyond just the two of us or a handful of us and stretch it out into maybe a bigger community of people who would hear these conversations and dialogue, maybe perhaps be inspired, but at a minimum, get a chance to hear perspectives that perhaps they're not hearing every day. Anything you would add? I want to say Dr. DJ. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whatever works for you. DJ is fine. (laughs) Whatever works. (laughs) DJ is fine. That's a good name. I like that. Dr. DJ. Uh, DJ is good. I'm going to use that from now on. Not a whole lot, Bob. I mean, Charles said it. 
I think the other element that he and I talk a lot about is just the trust that we had for each other, that we were aligned on what this would look like. We didn't have the total vision laid out, but we knew fundamentally what we wanted to achieve and we trusted each other to get there. (laughs) And it's been awesome now that we're moving into year three. Yeah, no doubt. That is awesome. So let me ask you this. For both of you, growing up was your idea to create your own companies? Was it your idea to one day have a podcast? Like, what was it like growing up for you both in terms of siblings, finances? Did your parents talk about it? What was your environment like for each of you? I can hit that pretty quickly. I grew up with a single mom through sixth grade, then my grandmother, seventh through 12th grade. So I was the only man in the house besides maybe two weeks of my life when my mom and dad were attempting to reconcile Mm -hmm. when I was in third grade. That's the backdrop. So my mom was hustling and grinding, never finished her college degree, but always found a way to land in nice roles that allowed us to, you know, flourish. So we lived in some neighborhoods, some tough neighborhoods at times, but there was always love in the home. As far as what I aspired to be, it was either a professional football player or a psychologist. And that was through high school. Even though I was a business major undergrad, I still had this vision of being a psychologist once I knew the cleats were hung up in football. And today I've sort of meshed my love for psychology and my love for business in the work that I do now. But those were the two things I was squarely focused on growing up, Bob. And was there any common denominator between playing football and psychology? Yeah, I think the psychological aspects of any sport are underestimated. Yeah. You know, we see these NFL quarterbacks, just for example, point guards in the NFL, and the level of psychology involved, especially when you start talking about directing and guiding teams and memory and application and all those things, there's heavy psychology in that. Yeah. And I think that connection continues to resonate today when I watch sports or play what little sports that I do. I still work out quite a bit and there's heavy psychology in that, especially when I don't feel like going to the gym. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Tomorrow. (laughs) Exactly. Taking the day off. (laughs) That's right. And how about you, Charles? Uh, It's so funny, you know, just thinking about psychology. I literally just came back from a session with my trainer and it is one of those things where there's days when you just don't want to do it, right? And the psychology around what you're trying to accomplish has to be bigger than what your mind or your body is trying to tell you in the moment. So I totally agree with DJ. In terms of my um, upbringing, it's interesting. I came from two very different sides of family. My mother's side of family, very much academia, you know, even through like in early 1920s, 30s, as, you know, African-American families in the South, I had a, a grandfather with a PhD great aunts who attended NYU and got master's degrees, just very unheard of at that particular time. And then my mother and her siblings all went to college, graduated. And my mother even has a master's degree. On my father's side of the family, my grandfather stopped going to school in sixth grade. My grandmother graduated from high school, but nothing beyond that. But they both managed to send five kids to college and they all graduated. So I think the foundation for me, and my father also has a master's degree, the foundation for me was always education. It was a big, big, big focus in my home growing up. I knew that was just going to be a part of my life, not just on the sort of secondary education standpoint going to college, but certainly beyond that to try to accomplish something more 
beyond what my parents did and leverage that as possible means for opportunity in life. I think when it comes back to entrepreneurial pursuits, my grandmother, who again, didn't have an education past the 12th grade, was an entrepreneur, was a florist. She owned a florist business in a small town in the South for 60 years, literally until she couldn't work anymore. And I just remember being in her shop after school many, many days and even putting together my own arrangements to try to sell them. I'll never forget the first time I sold a, an arrangement for 10 bucks in her shop. I still recall that. And I think that was one of the drivers for me to ultimately want to be in business for myself and as an entrepreneur. But I think going back into where my real focus was in terms of, you know, making sure that the education was a big part of my life, I don't really recall having this real foundation around financial literacy. And money wasn't a big topic in our home. I always say I had everything I needed and a little bit of what I wanted. It just wasn't that money was flowing in our home and that we were anywhere close to being wealthy. But I felt like we were rich in terms of love, in terms of like what our parents provided us, my sister and I, I have a younger sister. And so I think that showed up for me probably my early years in college, getting a job and working part-time while I was in college and then thinking, okay, I've got a little money in my pocket, go get a credit card. And boom, next thing you know, <laughs> you're, you're in debt and you see these payments come every week, month with interest. And that was a big lesson for me. And unfortunately, it was a lesson I learned in college and learned early and one not to repeat later in life. I think had those conversations happened in my home when I was a lot younger, maybe perhaps in high school, that would have been a different story. But, you know, it was one of those things where I had to learn that lesson on my own. I think it was one of the best I've had in terms of what it means to really extend yourself beyond what your means are. I know, Charles, you said you had entrepreneurs in your family, but was that something that was on track for both of you that like, oh, this is something I want to do? Was there this thought of like, I need to do one better than my parents or the next generation that I've got to pay it forward. Was there any that kind of conversation or was it more of like, I just got to survive? Like, what was the drive? I think for me, I was in an inroads program, which was an internship program right out of high school, going into college and happened to be around some really motivated young people as well. It was a minority internship program. And we would toss around ideas about starting businesses had a t-shirt business early on in those early college years. But I think the focus for me was getting this corporate job, right? Going through the motions of getting this degree in business, going out, getting a good corporate job with a big corporation. That was sort of the focus of the time frame. We weren't necessarily thinking about how do we move into the next entrepreneur opportunity. And I don't think it was until I got beyond graduate business school and then law school where I think the light bulb went off for me that there were opportunities out there from an entrepreneurial perspective that, you know, if I went down this path, that it could be wildly successful depending on my effort and obviously being in a good business. Yeah, not dissimilar to Charles. It was about getting a good job. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it was probably relative to prior generation. Mm -hmm. And in high school, it was about going to college. Right. So whether that was a football scholarship, academic scholarship, or working and going. I was the first one on my mom's side to get a college degree. So that was the thrust there, Bob. Well, and I'm curious about, Charles, you were mentioning that like even back in the 20s in the South, you had relatives that had college degrees and things like that. And to me, it's like a lot of people go, wow, you know, that's impressive. There's also a lot of barriers. Like a lot of people will go, oh yeah, my grandmother, my great grandmother, right? But that's somebody coming from privilege. 
and the obstacles that your family may have had to go through. And I'm wondering, even as you got these corporate jobs, there were still, I would imagine, challenges that someone like myself might not have had to go through. Yeah, you know, I felt really fortunate, quite frankly. You know, there are a lot of times when I was really focused on wanting to be the athlete that DJ spoke about. I was a basketball player aspiring to do things beyond high school or college. And my folks just looked at it very, very differently. They could care less about They weren't rooted in sports and they just didn't care about it. And that foundation for me, I really appreciate it today and I appreciate it now. And so that was a helpful piece for me, being able to stay grounded in what was really important at the time, right? And so I think it was those experiences that helped me move in that direction and stay in that direction. Now, you started a company that recruits and helps people get jobs. Now, do you work specifically with minorities getting placement or it just happens to be that it's minority owned and you work with placing everybody? I'm just trying to like get a sense of empowering and lifting up people or. We're just a minority owned company. We recruit in place for all different skill sets, but also all different kinds of people in their backgrounds and experiences. I think because of how we're rooted, we definitely come across and work with a lot of minority candidates and placing them as well. But we've always been in a firm that we're just trying to place the best talent in the marketplace. And whoever that talent might be, we're certainly advocating with our clients when they have a need and they are thinking of this as something that would be more of a diverse hire that they're interested in. We're obviously very supportive of that and going to go to market and do our best to find that top talent that also happens to be diverse. Okay. And I'm just going to keep calling you Dr. DJ because I got to use doctor. Like I, you worked hard for doctor. I'm going to keep bringing it in. <laughs> you started something, Bob. That's going to stay. <laughs> That's cute. You know what? You got to be like, hey, I worked for it. I'm going to, everybody's got to know I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. With your firm and working with inclusion, diversity, equity, when we're looking at firms and finances and in terms of pay gaps and that disparity, do you come across that a lot with the firms and the work that you do? Yeah, to the extent that companies want to do that work and expose that type of data, absolutely. It's one of many issues, Bob, that exist as it relates to diversity or lack of diversity. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, even when that data is presented and we do the assessments to determine what the real issues are and the root of those issues, the willingness on typically a homogenous executive team, to act upon the solutions is where the biggest challenges come in. Yeah. Because it reframes the perspective of everybody in the organization, stakeholders, shareholders, once that commitment has to be made. So for example, recruiting from an HBCU now, you might be surprised how many companies don't want that label on them, though they want to hire more Black employees, which is odd. Right. They'd rather get them from Arizona State or wherever it might be. So there are a number of challenges, but again, it's all contingent upon what environment, what culture, and what values you want to create, Mm -hmm. not just espouse the values, but lived values within the organization. You said that that's the biggest challenge is actually the implementation. That's great information. Now you actually want me to live it. It seems to me like part of that resistance is now this homogenous group of people might actually have to take personal accountability. Mm -hmm. They might actually have to be responsible and take actionable items that actually model what you're proposing to implement. And shift many of the practices that have gone unchecked in the organization if it does become more diverse. Absolutely. 
you come into a company and people may go, yeah, yeah, let's do this. We want to do this. It looks good. Mm -hmm. And we want to be diverse. And now I'm having to look at myself, right. And go, oh, now I actually have to Mm -hmm. like step up to the plate. Now that I know better, how do you bring in that wide welcome or get people to get on board with it so that they're not like, oh, I've got to be defensive or that's not what I meant. Like, how do you get people on board so that we can create this wider welcome? Yes. I don't push too hard if you want the truth. It's not my job. It's not my role. And it's not about the money at this point for me. It's truly about trying to help. And I've walked away from clients who haven't been willing to actually execute. I don't want to waste their time or my time. They expect me to operate with integrity. I expect that from them as well. And that's very clear up front. So at the six-month point where we go back and kind of do a contract review and we've achieved these wonderful things, but the stopgap has to do with execution and that doesn't fall on me. I also don't, Bob, want to be branded on a website, on flyers as their person of record right. when they're not really trying to make, right? So that's dangerous in a number of different. Sure. So I've had to walk away from several clients and that's not ideal. But at the end of the day, that might be what's best for everyone. Mm -hmm. That doesn't always happen. More times than not, we're able to execute and see some really, really seismic shifts in the culture. And in some of those shifts, do you see increases in pay or equity in pay? Or is that still a big hurdle? It's still a big hurdle, but we do see it because you're bringing in people who actually come from an environment oftentimes where they're just blown away and they're not going to accept certain amounts of money compensation. But, you know, better representation at higher levels in the organization, that's always a focus. More diverse people at the executive table, that's always a focus. Voice, the ability to exercise voice in terms of culture, values, and respect. So those are the things that I really focus on. It's a seven-dimension scale that I work off of. Authenticity, transparency, respect, values, culture, et cetera. So that's what we measure and hope to shift whenever we go into an organization. And that's what we measure on the back end coming up. Sometimes when I hear diversity, it feels like it's oversimplified. Like a company might go, oh, I want to have diversity. I'm going to have two black people and we'll have an Asian person. And even that, like an Asian person, well, wait, are we talking the Philippines? Are we talking China? Are we talking (laughs) Japan? Right. Or Mm -hmm. even if we're talking a person of color, are we talking about West Africa? Are we talking about Haiti? Like it's not as simple as, oh, we've got a nice little mix. And I've worked in some organizations where we use the word complexity because some people want to come in and go, hey, let's bring in the diversity guy and make it just like and simplify. Do you come across that or does sometimes a company come in and they're oversimplifying the process? Yeah. And that oversimplification ends up being confusion. So a couple of things. One is what you spoke about. Let's make it so simple. We need two black folks, an Asian and a Latina. Right. And we're probably good for the next year. That's oversimplification. Right. Right. The other is such a strong focus on demographics and not psychographics that you can have 10 Herschel Walkers in an organization and not make much progress. Right. And I truly mean 10 Herschel Walkers. And you're not really going to make much progress in terms of diversity. As a matter of fact, you may shift yourself in the other direction. Right. Just because you've got the numbers now. Right. So there's a psychographic piece. Yeah. Which is so important. When we talk about, again, things like HBCUs, culture, and that sort of thing. So if you're real about wanting that, then be real about being open to where that comes from. 
What would you say are the biggest challenges like that you face personally in bringing in clients or working with people? And I'll ask Charles similar as well, because like there are daily hurdles, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just pie in the sky kind of stuff, but like actually (laughs) when I get up today, these are the things I'm going to face. And these are going to be the challenges that I have to deal with that other people maybe don't. Go ahead, Charles, and then I'll follow up, buddy. It's interesting. I don't necessarily think about this all the time because I think if you did, you'd, it would wear on you, right? Yeah. If every morning I woke up with this understanding that, okay, you know, I'm walking out the door today, a black man, and people are going to look at me different and they're going to treat me different and they're going to have different expectations of me. And I know all those things are real, right? And I know that when I show up, whether it's a business meeting or if I show up at some sort of event, and mostly it in my case, I'm doing a lot of things around business and business owners and the business community. And that tends to be where I live here in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, that tends to be overwhelmingly white audience. And so I think perceptions around your abilities and your quality certainly tend to get you no know, challenged. And those are things that I've come to expect, but I also know that I'm rooted in, you know, my experience and expertise and who I am as a human being and what value I bring. And so having that being where I'm always coming from and having that confidence about that, that sort of carries the day for me. And so every single day I'm walking out of the door, understanding who I am, what I do to create value for myself and for my business. And then obviously for others as well, that keeps me focused on that part of things and not so much on what are people thinking about me? Mm-hmm. I know those things are always going to be a part of the equation, but I'm just trying to keep it simple in terms of what I need to do every day to focus on being my best self. Bob, I'll speak to this one from a personal perspective. You know, I've always tried to operate from the beginning of my career in the 90s when I started a professional career. It's always been important to me to try to operate from a singular identity, whether I'm hanging out with Charles or at the gym or at work. And I think the challenge for a lot of, I'll speak directly around Black folks, Mm -hmm. is they aren't necessarily empowered to show up with their most authentic identity. Right. And that can be a challenge and it can be psychologically damaging. So I focus a lot on those conversations with Black youth. That was a lot. Back when I was running that foundation in Chicago, I was having that conversation about being confident about your authentic self. So I think a lot of the stress and self-preservation and debilitating behaviors comes in not being able to come in with an authentic identity that is your best you. You're having to shape shift and try to figure out how to fit into a conversation or a workplace. And that becomes the focus and not performing. And for me personally, it was a big impetus for me to not ever work in corporate America again unless I chose to. So part of my initiative in retiring early was just that, wanting to operate with a singular identity. And I didn't feel like I compromised myself every day or ever compromised myself. I just knew when I felt like, Am I really being my authentic self? I'm not sure. Part of where I feel really liberated today is that I'm confident that I operate with my authentic self and you know exactly who's going to show up, whether it's a podcast, the gym, a consulting session, or in Charles's backyard. You know, just a couple of seconds here for me. I can't stress how one important what DJ just shared is and how critical for the ability to really thrive and flourish. Quite frankly, you know, if you're sitting in a seat like DJ and I, I knew early on before I attended law school, and it was probably one of the impetus for me to move on 
from the corporate career that I was moving along in was that I realized really quickly that I could not be my authentic self. And after having some real conversations with some of the leaders within the organization, I am a multinational, large organization, I will say, I just realized that wasn't going to be a place where I could thrive and grow. And so I went down this path of practicing law, which worked well for me in the early stages of that practice, but also understood that there were going to be limitations there as well. And for me to be who I wanted to be all the time, I had to pursue my own path as an entrepreneur. And even then, it took some years, quite frankly, to sort of live in that seat of authenticity every single day because you're in front of clients. You're having to certainly have a perspective with candidates and people that you work with day in and day out that sometimes it may not require you to be something different, but it certainly requires you to mute yourself at times and not share some of those perspectives. And I think I'd say over the last five to 10 years as I've sort of moved into this space as an entrepreneur where I've been really rooted and grounded in a good business where we've had a lot of success and then financially having the ability to sort of live in a place or space where I have means where I don't have a lot of concerns about anyone being able to take any of that away from me because I know I've worked hard during it and that there's a lot more moving into the future for what I can accomplish and do and build upon it. So those things have allowed me to live in a place or space again of being really, truly authentic and know who I am and have that same person show up just about everywhere I am in life. It's painful and sad to hear that you don't get to show up authentically or that you have to temper it to be able to fit in or to be able to navigate through the corporate or wherever. That's something, it feels a little foreign to me in a way because I feel like I just get to sort of be entitled and have that little privilege and just say whatever I think. And if somebody doesn't like it, I can tell them to shut up or I'll go over here. And like, that's not on my radar as often, I think that, oh, I need to make sure that I'm not going to be perceived as angry or, oh, wow, like, that's amazing that they're so capable. That's surprising, right? Like, I don't have these, I mean, maybe I do, but I don't think that I have these stereotypes or these assumptions that are being made about me generally. And so that saddens me. I'm glad that you both went out and, you know, if you're not going to have me at the table, I'm going to go make my own table and I'm going to have a lot more people at my table and then <laughs> do it my way. And so that's the part that's empowering and that feels really good is that, yeah, I'm going to be my authentic self regardless of what it takes and then pay that forward to the youth out there to help them get to be their authentic selves through the work that you do in the community. That just feels like, wow, that's a lot to carry. Yeah. And you know, Bob, they aren't always monumental shifts in self-identity. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're very micro in nature. And the last piece you talked about, I think, is critically important because you do, going through that process, if you're diligent and self-aware, you're building new muscle at the same time. Right. So when you talked about yourself not having to do that, you're also not building that muscle, right? Right. So you don't have to necessarily put yourself in another culture. Right. So you end up being void of that later in life, oftentimes, unless you're seeking it out personally, which a lot of folks don't. So the upside is what you said at the end is that there's this muscle being built and there's application for that muscle. Absolutely. Yeah, there is a power in being able to read the room and you understand what's happening, but no one knows what's going on in your head. Strategically, a lot of times you can use that to your advantage and it's just the default, right? It's what it is. And so DJ and I aren't walking around feeling sorry for ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're just finding ways to use this as a mechanism for us 
to be able to leverage it however we need to, to be at our best. Mm-hmm. And how are you like in your personal lives moving that forward in terms of finances? Are you working on, you know, oh, I need to have generational wealth or I'm needing to do these different things? Like how does, and not that money again is the be all end all kind of thing, but having financial independence. It's very important though, Bob. It's very important. It's very important. Financial independence is critical. DJ and I talk about this a lot. We don't minimize it at all. It's critical to our existence. And I think we should talk more about it. 100%. I agree. You know, I'll let Charles speak to the generational piece. He's got three kids and a wife. So he's in a bit of a different situation than I am. (laughs) I'm trying to create generational wealth for somebody. I don't even know who it is right now. I'm not married anymore and I don't have children, but I still look at it as if I'm creating generational wealth. For sure. Annuity streams, that means real estate, that means businesses. Because I never plan to have to be in corporate America again unless I really, really want to. So that's very important. And being creative and aware and having networks really matters too. But also having ideas that are concepts that you can actually use as content for me have been really critical. And that was part of the impetus to go back and get my doctorate. Yeah. So there was a dollar sign at the end of that for me also. Yeah, for sure. Generational wealth is absolutely critical. And that's, you know, part of what my family and I are building for a lot of different reasons. I want my kids to be able to have a lot of options in life. And I think having the financial ability to make choices that aren't predicated on, can I afford to do this? Or am I able to go and be involved in this or that certainly changes the direction of what you're able to do in life. And so I want them to have options of if you want to start a business or if you want to go to graduate school or law school, like you, you don't have to be burdened with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to try to make that happen. And I have a little bit of a unique situation. I have two kids with special needs. And so there's going to be a need for at least one of them to probably have a lot of long-term care. And so that for me is a huge, huge piece to make sure that they're taken care of and have an ability to live a really high quality life and not one where they're somehow stuck in the system, as we all know, doesn't take care of our people the way they need to. It's interesting. The state of California and the city of Manhattan Beach just recently gave back some property to the great grandsons of the family where it was the Black Beach that was taken away and all this stuff. And one of the pieces that they talked about was making reparations for the fact that there was loss of generational income to this family that this had all been taken away. And it was just a small step. You know, it didn't make it all right, but it was at least a movement towards replacing what was taken because this family that had created generational wealth, it was just pulled from them. And so opportunities for the grandkids or for the kids, like things were missed. And I don't think people fully grasp the damage that was done. Yeah, the impact, right. The impact. 100% correct. And that's a microcosm of the bigger landscape because you can take that example and that has happened tens of thousands of times right. all over this country where literally on the backs of slaves and Black Americans, American Indians, even Hispanics later, you know, later in years being low-paid wage earners, millions and billions have been made in terms of generational wealth that taking land, free labor, all those things have enabled an entire multi-generation of people to have a ton of success in this country and lots of wealth that if you had this massive transfer of wealth, 
who knows what that will look like. It will look very, very different than what it looks like today and what it looked like 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And that's why I think these conversations are so important to keep having and keep having to have these uncomfortable conversations because for a lot of people who've gotten to benefit off of that, to have to acknowledge that or in any way say that, oh, no, I worked hard for this. No, well, <laughs> debatable, right? Mm. <laughs> Until there's some acknowledgement and personal responsibility, how this country has operated for a very long time, it's improved, but dramatically, maybe not. I still think that's open to debate. And so to me, it's important that we keep having these conversations and make people be uncomfortable if they get uncomfortable, because it just can't be brought up enough, in my opinion. Correct. And I think that's part of what we're dealing with right now in this country today. There's a lot of resistance to that. You're willing to have this conversation with the two of us. And I think if more people were willing to have these kinds of conversations, we'd be in a much different place. But the reality is, I think there's a driving force to take us back in time because this is such a difficult conversation, a difficult dialogue that people are demanding today. And I think the more demands we have for this conversation, you know, 20 years ago, and DJ may have the same perspective, but 20 years ago, when we were first trying to talk about diversity, we were trying to coax people into the dialogue. We were trying to make people comfortable where they were okay sitting in a room and saying, are you okay? We want to make sure that your tears are authentic too. Whereas today, I think there's a greater demand of like, we can't sit around and wait for you to come to the table. We want to have these conversations. We're going to have this conversation now because we have to in order to advance the lives that really need to have more opportunity, more recognition, and just ground to stand on and call their own. And that insistence, I think, is creating this backlash of make America great again. Yeah. Those kinds of dialogues and conversations are being rooted in the fact that people are scared that somehow their place in life is going to get uprooted. Whereas I think the bigger opportunity is having this growth mindset about what oh, there's enough for all of us. Right. Let's just figure out a way to make this a situation where more opportunity for me means more opportunity for you. When we do that together, there's nothing we can accomplish as a community, as people, and as a nation. That's the dialogue we need to be having. Yeah, and I think what comes to mind, I probably don't have the saying right, but you know, those with privilege, when they have to share, feels like oppression, right? Because like, I have to give up all my pieces of pie, even though you don't have any. And so it's a hard conversation, I think. I know like for myself, having to look at my own socialization, look at my own conscious and unconscious racial bias or places where I've been complicit in a system that serves me, it's painful to look at. To then have to look at all that and then know that it's not everybody else's problem to make me feel better about myself and that everybody else needs to take care of me. It's like having to own that. That's a lot, I think, for a lot of people where they're like, well, I'm feeling really comfortable. Like, I don't want to look at the ugly parts of me, right? I don't want to look at the warts. But until we do that... Yeah, Bob, so yeah. we're seeing today, just recently, there was a young Black child riding his bike on the street in a quote-unquote white neighborhood. Old white dude comes out and accosts him, get the F off my street, get out of my neighborhood. Well, yeah, the reality is you don't own a neighborhood. Right. So that giving up is not even yours to give up. Right. And just because you've declared it as yours doesn't make it yours. So the declaration of ownership doesn't entitle you to ownership. Yeah. So we're seeing that arrogance that you spoke of mm -hmm. expand into, well, whatever I claim is mine is mine. So right. it's becoming really dangerous. Yeah. And I think the hardest, what's been interesting for me is that 
with all that's been going on in the world, I guess I falsely believe we were further along than we were. So now having to look at the ugly truth of where things are and then at least knowing so that we can at least move forward. Because if you don't know where you really are, you can't really move forward from that place. Mm -hmm. But again, the importance of having these conversations, I have so much to learn. Certainly, it's not always pleasant. And the corrective (laughs) information that I get, I take it in and just keep trying to have these conversations because we're not going to get anywhere if we're not having them, even as uncomfortable they can be. That's true. That's the reason we're having them, Bob, because we all learn from one another. And I think that's the biggest takeaway. Again, going back to why DJ and I started the Conscious Vibe podcast, we want to illuminate some of these conversations and have others join us in it. And again, I said, join us. We're not trying to necessarily tell you what the conversation has to be, but we need to hear one another. I think that's an important piece. And to me, of course, bringing back into the money piece, financial literacy and financial equality is such a big piece of this whole conversation because it has been about unequitable wealth. It's a few people that have been able to hold on to because they jumped in there and either had the might or the power or the guns or whatever. And like to me, it's just so important that we get back to this piece with financial literacy that hasn't been taught in underserved and underrepresented communities and really start to empower people because there is plenty for everybody. It doesn't have to be, it's limited. And if I don't get it all, then nobody else is going to get it. Right. Yeah. And even with the heavy, heavy institutional roadblocks that exist for oftentimes people of color, especially black folks, there are opportunities and you need to be aware of those opportunities. And to your point, literate around those opportunities in order to even recognize them. So understanding what is an interest rate, you know, even learning that sort of thing in high school. What is that? What's an interest rate? What does this fluctuation imply? What's a pledged asset loan? All of these things are really, really important. They become important. And living through ignorance isn't going to help any of us. So the literacy piece is really, really important. Yeah. And oftentimes, and it's not necessarily anyone's fault growing up, I really couldn't expect a whole lot of that in the home. What I could expect was make sure you save enough money. Right. But we know life is a little bit deeper than that when you're trying to become an entrepreneur, et cetera. So some of that's just on us. We can't expect that from prior generations, et cetera. Right. But we have to be thirsty for it, Bob. You know, we have to want to, and typically it starts with some sort of vision and then you build in the meaning of financial literacy around that. But it's extremely important. When I decided I wanted my last day of work to be July 17th, 2015, I better had been financially literate if I was going to walk out of Nike Inc. and say, you're never going to see me again. I better know what I was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of clients that don't even put money in the bank because they don't trust the bank. (laughs) Even something as simple as, can I trust that? Or can I trust the mortgage company? Like all those, the redlining and all those different things or bias in interest rates. I mean, it just goes on and on. So the more we can teach that financial literacy piece and across cultures, it's just not taught. And so for me, it's just getting out there and hoping to help empower people with financial literacy, to get curious, to get thirsty so that we can start to change the landscape and empower more people. Mm -hmm. And we have to be thirsty ourselves, right? Even if it's never taught to us, it doesn't mean we can't learn it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, gentlemen, we are at the Fast Five. I really could have this conversation for the another the next week because <laughs> it feels so important. But in fairness to our listeners, we are at the Fast Five. Fast Five is brought to you by Acorns, where you can invest spare change, bank smarter, save for retirement, and more. For more information, check out the link in the show notes. We're going to jump into the Fast Five. I do just want to talk that piece about Acorns, self-automated savings and all that thing. Even if it's five bucks, people out there listening, five bucks, just start doing something towards your financial future. It doesn't have to be huge. You just have to start walking. All right, we're going to have fun with some questions here. You can decide who's going to answer first. If you could go back in time and correct one money mistake, what would you correct? I put Charles on the spot early, so I'll take the heat and lead with that one. I sold a property that I should have held on to. I thought the market was shifting down and for some reason would never come back again. And I got antsy and sold that property for a loss. Not fun. No, especially when I look at what that property is going for today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it was early in life and I learned my lesson. Yeah. Painful, painful. Emotions get the best of us with that mm-hmm. stuff. Not coming back. All right, Charles, what's the most expensive thing you ever purchased that's not a car or a house? Probably embarrassed to say that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) we won't judge we won't judge probably you know I just made a recent purchase that's probably the most expensive thing that's not a car or a house but it's a piece of art nice nice and it's one that I'm really excited about and I don't have it yet because it's still in the exhibit where I found it but very very excited to make an investment in an area where I've never been able to do so or at least didn't have enough education to feel like I could and so that's probably been the biggest purchase I've made, or the most expensive purchase I've made at this point. That's awesome. I think art and artists are definitely underappreciated. So that's super cool. When were you the most grateful to have money? When I knew I wanted to retire from corporate America. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a good time. How about yourself, Charles? I think it's just having the wherewithal sometimes to make decisions where you want to do something, whether it be buy a home or second home or make an investment. I got an opportunity probably about six months ago to make an investment in something that I felt was a technology that would be really put us away, create explosive growth in cybersecurity and was attached to some work that Google's doing and being able to actually write the check to make what I would call a significant investment. Yeah. It was good to be able to do those things and have to think twice about it. And not worrying if it's going to clear the bank. <laughs> Well, right. Or that it's going to, as I always like to say, it's going to change the way you eat, right? Yeah. When was the first time you felt like you had made it financially? For me, I think the first time was we bought a second home in Corona Mar, Newport Beach area. And as you can imagine, real estate in that area is not inexpensive. To be able to make that purchase in a time in life where I felt like I was just sort of like sprouting my wings and beginning to make inroads financially was just a really big deal. So great. Yeah. For me, I know I keep saying this. Oh, (laughs) when I didn't have to get up and go to work. Nice. Nice. What is something you think you overspend on but refuse to stop buying? Margaritas. (laughs) That was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was probably at one point automobiles for me. Okay. But I don't have that problem anymore. (laughs) You take public transportation. You gave up on the cars. Yeah, I walk yeah. everywhere I go now. <laughs> oh, there you go. Awesome. 
All right. Well, we are at our M&M moment, our sweet spot, money and motivation. Can you each give either a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom that's worked for you that you could share with our listeners? For me, it's really simple. This is going to maybe be oversimplified. For the most part, if you can't pay cash for it, you can't really afford it. Yep. And cash is king. I think that's where we continue to not only have the opportunity to take advantage of opportunity in life, to build wealth or acquire what I would call assets that grow in value. If you don't have cash to do those things, you're able to participate. Yeah, cash is king. I think you're always paying somebody's mortgage, whether it's yours or the landlord. So just know you're never not paying a mortgage. Yeah. And I think that that's critical to understand. I'm not saying buying is always the best decision over renting, but primarily it probably is. But don't ever think you're getting away not paying a mortgage because you are. It's either yours or somebody else's. Absolutely right. (laughs) Might as well make it yours. Might as well make it yours. Absolutely. Where can people find you online? Where can they find the podcast? And where can they even just engage your services for your companies? Well, I'll start with the podcast. It's tcvpodcast.com. That's the Conscious Vibe Podcast.com. tcvpodcast.com. And then just for me personally, I'm DJ the Doc on Instagram. So any inquiries, hit me there and we can have a discussion from that point. DJ, T-H-E-D-O-C. Awesome. And then for me, I'm a little behind the times, but you can find me on my website. My company, <laughs> All About People, is www.allaboutpeople.net. There should be a link to my email to reach me there. Sounds good. I'll call you on my flip phone. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Exactly. And hey, Bob, want to compliment you on this format. I think Charles and I have a lot of discussions just around financial literacy and the importance of financial wealth and not at all in a popular collar sort of way. Yeah. It's relationship to flourishing and even mental health. Absolutely. And the fact that you have a format that embraces that and illuminates that, I think is critical. Yeah. Cheers to that. 100%. That's exactly right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It just feels so important. I know I didn't get a lot of messaging and had to learn a lot of stuff on my own. And I know there's a lot of people out there that certainly didn't get the resources or the tools. And it's just so important from my perspective that like we just empowered the youth and actually empower everybody, but mm-hmm. it feels like a mission that, yeah, it's just very dear to my heart. So that's awesome. I appreciate that. Bob, we really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. We've enjoyed this. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed having you both on and anything I can do to help, please let me know. Love to support and uplift the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We'll stay in touch for sure. Have a good one. You too, buddy. Take care, Bob. Be well. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. 